Proudly coming to you from Nashville, Tennessee, this is the Frontier Podcast. I'm your host, Ledge, and we are powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on iTunes and join the conversation at the Frontier Pod on Twitter. Giddy up. Sina Galshani is the director of technology at Fabricated Extrusion Company. He previously spent eight years at Boeing in various aerospace engineering roles. Sina established and manages the computational engineering function responsible for supporting the custom extrusion business and product design needs of customers in various industries, including heavy machinery, aerospace, automotive, medical devices, and more. Over the course of his career, he's developed a unique framework for innovation. In this episode, I invited him to share the four pillars of his system. Sina, thanks for joining us. Really great to have you on. Great to be here, David. Fantastic. Uh, please, if you would introduce yourself to uh, you know our listeners, maybe two or three minutes about y- your uh, history and your work. Sure thing. Yeah, I was born in Iran. I moved to the U.S. about 13 years ago. Uh, started school at USC for aerospace engineering. I went there for undergrad and grad school, and somewhere in between, I fit in a program at MIT for management. And then I started with the Boeing company in 2009 in the commercial section, where I worked on various projects and various roles, primarily in new airplane development um, and aerodynamics engineering. Uh, And about a little more than a year ago, I moved to a new leadership role. I'm currently the director of technology at Fabricated Extrusion Company, which is located in the Central Valley, about an hour outside of uh, San Fran. And I'm the, um, I basically direct a number of projects um, related to computational simulations, basically engineering optimization and product design for our customers and our own internal needs. And you and I had a really interesting conversation, you know, before we, we got on the recording about, you know, the framework that you use, um, you know, both, you know, in the current simulation work and then, you know, prior to that, that you had developed a, a framework of thinking around, you know, innovation and uh, the major pillars of doing that. I would love if you would share that with the listeners. Sure thing. Yeah. So uh, I've been involved in a lot of innovation initiatives and contests and in general, just a lot of innovative work. And I basically have four principles that I think uh, determine relevance when it comes to innovating. And I think they can be generalized uh, into pretty much any, any technical field. First one I call design competence. And this primarily has to do with people doing the work. Competent team makes all the difference, you know, between making or breaking a project. And, uh, you know, if, if, if you can gather together a very good competent team, you're, you know, 70% of the way home to potentially having a successful project that leads to some innovative product. The second component of my design ethos is basically computational physics. And this is something that has been around for a little while, but just recently in the past five to 10 years, we've seen a lot of development in computer, uh, computer simulation software and low-cost, high-performance computers and you know very capable GPU accelerators, and all these synergistically have enabled uh, engineers, designers to do new types of analysis before they ever, you know, build anything and, you know, be able to 
create extraordinary performance out of whatever it is that they're designing. So pretty much the way I see it is if you're dealing with any complex process or product design problems, uh, you know, computational physics would be the way to go. Absolutely. Payoff is there. Uh, technology has been developed to the point that it can be used readily. Uh, I definitely recommend it uh, to be incorporated in whatever project you're working in if, if, if it fits the framework. The third component is the high-velocity team. And uh, by that, I mean a fairly small team of experts that work very well together. And most importantly, they're enabled and allowed uh, to operate with speed without being hampered you know, uh, by a corporate bureaucracy or something like that. Um, and there are many cases uh, of, of high-velocity teams in different industries that I've studied, uh, and they've, they've all exhibited certain, certain traits that we can, we can actually go into if, um, if, if there's interest. But it's basically you need a highly motivated team that is enabled, has authority, and ultimately is held accountable for results and rewarded accordingly. Uh, and they're given a limited time to do this, and hence the high velocity. So, you know, that, that would be the structure for a small team to do relevant innovations, uh, I think, pretty much in any field. Larger teams, in my opinion, uh, create a lot of management overhead. And, uh, you know, the performance doesn't increase proportional to this team size above a certain number of people. And the other one, perhaps one of the more important ones, is, is product strategy. I see a lot of innovation happening in in absence of a lot of evidence on the demand side. For instance, a lot of people just you know look at a market and there is there's the absence of a certain type of product or service. And they interpret that as, oh, you know, there is there is a there's a there's a gap there and there is absolutely a commercial demand. They automatically make the connection that because there's a gap, there's commercial demand, and they go, you know, and develop a product or service and places in that in that gap, uh, only to realize that the gap was there for a reason, and you know the demand is simply not there, or you know the physics simply just doesn't add up. Anyone involved in innovation has to be very careful, you know, before you undertake any sort of uh, significant development. Uh, you need to sit down and look at your own proposed product or service space very closely and very critically and determine if there are very good reasons why such thing doesn't exist. Either the market isn't there, the economics doesn't work, the physics doesn't add up, or technology is just very, very far off, um, things of that sort. So that that prevents a lot of white elephants from being developed and a lot of people spending a lot of money and time uh, developing them in vain. And that's, that's about it. That's the four principles. Fantastic. Where, you know, I wonder over the, the course of your, you know, evolution of this, this framework, um, you know, I assume you didn't sit down and write that down all in one day and there's quite a lot yeah. of experience and study there. How has it evolved from early versions of your, of the, you know, the mental model and uh, what have you kind of added and subtracted as you did more, more study and had more practical experience? I see. I think this has been just growing uh, since I started my career in aerospace in general. A uh, little bit maybe before that because I had studied a lot of um, biographies and case studies of successful designers and projects and, you know, try to come up with a common denominator of what makes, you know, a great design team work what is behind a great product, 
And, you know, originally I was very focused on aerospace because that's what I, what I specialize in. And um, over time, I realized that there are parallels in many other in, uh, fields of endeavor that you can actually fold into this. So it, it's been additive. You know, I, I didn't start with a much longer list and subtract out. I just, you know, as, as I went along, as I saw more and more common denominators, I just added them in. That's how this came to be. And you're absolutely right. Um, you know, each of these is highlighted by significant experience in my own career uh, or significant, significant ob observation in my own career. Uh, and, you know, in, in the order I just mentioned it to you, that's how I um, basically put it together gradually. We're in the business of largely software engineering, which you know doesn't involve a lot of, of physical product. How... I wonder how you would adapt item number two to or pillar oh. number two into that, that space, because you'd have to get pretty meta to, sure. you know, sort of uh, computationally model what software might do before developing yes. the software. Does, do you see that happen? I'm interested. Oh yeah. No, there, there's the a lot of that. Space. There's a lot of that happening uh, in the autonomous space um, because there you have a very complex combination of optical systems, uh, very complex software and AI in the loop that is commanding a physical machine moving around, being it a drone or uh, a wheeled vehicle. Uh, so I see a lot of that actually happening, uh, happening in the field, that the embedded software is being designed in parallel to the optical system, the sensor system, and the physical uh, vehicle itself. So I, I, I do see a lot of in interaction with, between just the software space, pure software space, and the rest of the parts of the machine. So I guess you could put that in that context. Um, but yeah, I mean, simulation per se, uh, you can look at it from, from different angles. But, you know, just, just being able to predict accurately uh, the optical performance of an optical sensor that you have in, in an autonomous vehicle uh, is, is a very big deal. And being able to do that accurately can be important. Uh, and since, you know, we, uh, we, we project that we won't have enough time uh, to reasonably field test any autonomous system, just being able to run holistic simulations involving all the sensors and the software and the physical uh, digital twins of the vehicle just in, in the virtual environment uh, becomes paramount. You know, you, you won't be able to afford to test the vehicle for you know, 10 years before you put it on the market to just make sure the AI and, and the rest of the components work well. However, if, if you've got enough compute power, you can actually do that with, uh, with a fair reasonable accuracy uh, in, the, in the virtual environment. And, and I think that's where, that's where that fits within, within the software ecosystem, you know, being able to do that and do that interaction correctly. You work with a lot of different clients solving a lot of different problems. Uh, what's the experience like, the, the ideal client experience? And I ask the question because, you know, a lot of, of freelancers work, you know, in a, in a structure where they're working with a lot of different clients and they have a lot of different uh, personalities and, you know, different value structures and things like that. So it's, there's a parallel there that, you know, you are working with people who are trying to develop really new, groundbreaking, innovative things and I wonder what you've learned about dealing with the different personalities and leadership types, particularly of the, 
you know, I'll call them the creative class, you know, the inventors sure. and the innovators, because, you know, they can be, uh, let's say sometimes, uh, opaque or esoteric or, uh, many of the other types of <laughs> right, adjectives right. that we could come up with. I guess, uh, one of the interesting trends I'm seeing is, um, when, when I consult, for instance, uh, there are typically two class of clientele that, that I deal with. The, the majority class, uh, are, you know, very educated and versed in the topic that they're seeking information about. And, um, you know, they are open, you know, they basically enter uh, the discovery phase with a very open mind. You know, they're, they're open to all arguments. They're going to engage a number of consultants so they can get, you know, different, different views. And, you know, they just digest that and come to a decision. Whereas a minority uh, of the clientele is simply looking for verification of their own their own ideas, you know. And I think in order for anyone to avoid making big mistakes in, you know, whatever field it is, if they're making a decision, they need to be able to do a lot of um, do a lot of synergistic thinking and involve a lot of different views. The best thing they can do is not enter a decision making process with an ideal outcome in mind, uh, or basically just, just don't get married to an idea entering the exploratory phase. That is very important because I've, I've seen a lot of people ignore tremendous amount of evidence and just enter development only to realize after having spent, you know, large amounts of money and time that, you know, certain, certain idea just simply doesn't pan out. And they would have realized that if, if they were just open-minded going in. So just keeping an open mind um, is probably probably the prime trait that I appreciate in a client, and I think it is it is uh, it is a big contributor to the success of uh, any technical endeavor in general. And that kind of fits in my uh, fourth pillar uh, under under product strategy. You know, you you should not enter basically an exploratory effort uh, with already an expected outcome that you're attached to and just simply pick and choose evidence to support that outcome. That can be very, very toxic. I wish many bootstrapping entrepreneurs would listen to that advice because it sometimes is a very expensive lesson to, <laughs> to learn with yes. your own money. Yes, and um, painful. Yes, very painful. Although, you know, it, it ends up being a good education if you, if you stay at it. Sometimes I think you need to learn that experientially with, with the burns and all. Let me ask you one last question. You have, you know, been in and around engineering and, you know, sort of highly technical work and that can be stressful and, you know, you need to, I think you'll probably agree, you know, free the mind sometimes and, you know, think about something else and think about a structure that, that doesn't adhere to, you know, innovative pillars and such. What do you recommend to people to get out of their, you know, sort of system, get out of their mental model? And, you know, what's been successful for you there, I would like to use, you know, and present that knowledge to our, you know, our engineers who are listening and, and think about, you know, hey, how do you get out of that chair and stop writing brilliant algorithms and go and do something else? Uh, and, and the ultimate goal would be to become a better person in general. Am I, am I correct to understand that? Well, you know, it, what's the position of you know, sort of open-mindedness and, uh, you know, maybe work-life balance, you know, and those things. 
Um, you've got, you've got some of the ideas that say, you know, we should work a hundred hours a week on our craft and that's all we should do. And then on the other side, you've got ideas that say, Hey, you know, we should take ample amount of breaks and we should, you know, go stare at a tree for, you know, some amount of time. I wonder where you land on that. Yeah. I'm personally the advocate of the second approach, um, you know, kind of, uh, be very organic in terms of how the work gets done, especially if you're seeking new things. Uh, I personally think that human thinking has evolved primarily around that. You know, the concept of working extreme long hours, just grinding at it, is is really not basically our default way of functioning. And although you can actually do that for a limited period of time and, you know, see a gain in efficiency, I think over time, if you make that same person do that same thing for years on end, over time, I think you're hampering his ability to be creative, to be productive, to be happy in general. So, you know, I'm, I'm very much a fan of, uh, you know, being organic about how you arrange that balance. And um, the truth is, for those of us who are not in the uh, manual labor business, for those of us who do primarily thinking and tinkering and development, I seldom think that any of us really, truly, 100% are able to stop our mind, uh, you know, when we go for a run or when, you know, we do yoga or any, any other activity, 100% shut off, you know, the train of thought that's related to the algorithm you're working on, right? I think there's always, you know, some, some background process that's happening and sometimes you realize it more than others. You know, I, I, I think we should respect that. I think, uh, I think that's a part of the process. You know, personally, I really like to you know, when I when I when I'm working on some very difficult problem at work, and uh, you know I'm not happy with my progress, I personally really like to just stop, go take a walk, and when I take my walk, I think about it. I I haven't stopped thinking about it. I just think about it, and nine out of ten times when I get back to my machine, you know I implement a solution and it works. You know I've seen that happen so many times, and I just recently realized that some some pretty famous scientists. Uh, arrived at that same process. Albert Einstein being one of them. That's that's how he he actually organized and tackled when he had a roadblock in some derivation. Just you know, take a 10-15 minute walk, think about it, and be back at your desk, and things work out. You know, I, I seriously doubt that he just locked himself in a room for you know 10 days to to be able to tackle those problems. You know, just because you you just you get tired, and a t- tired brain is not able to think creatively and that's what you need when you're facing a problem you need to engage that side of the brain that deals with creativity and it becomes increasingly more difficult if you're tired absolutely great advice and i've also found the same thing myself cena thanks so much for your insights i know you're a busy guy and we appreciate having you on i know the uh listeners are going to love it thanks dave i i really enjoyed it wish all the entrepreneurs out there best of luck and uh more useful products for the rest of us to use Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.
Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast, produced by Gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to Gun.io and get in touch. Let us know you heard the podcast and we'll pay for your first 10 hours with a kick-ass engineer.